Hey, I'm Jason Espy. I serve as an elder here. Uh, praise God. It's, it's good to have uh, the Lamb of God's blood over the doorpost over your heart, isn't it? It's good to be refreshed in him. Uh, I'll be reading from uh, Colossians 2, 16 through 23. And um, I got the 77, 1977 in ASB. I don't have the 95, so if there's a word off, that's why. All right. So, therefore, let no one... Act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or Sabbath day. Things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of the angels. Taking his stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the... From whom the entire body, being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments, grows with the growth which is from God. If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to the the decrees such as, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with the using, in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men. These are matters which have to which have to be sure the appearance of wisdom and self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. May God bless the reading of his word. Thank you, Jason. Well, good morning, friends. If you have your Bible, I encourage you to stay in Colossians chapter 2, verse 16 through 23. Today, we are in our seventh week of this book, walking verse by verse uh, from beginning to end, I plan to be in the pulpit every week until we finish this book in its entirety. But on the surface, this passage seems strange, culturally driven, and totally irrelevant to the 21st century, to the churches that we have today. But as I was unpacking this text, I realized that nothing was further from the truth. Matter of fact, the three distractions that Paul talks about in verses 16 to 20, the three things he points out are the same three distractions that every single church on planet Earth still faces some 2,000 years later. Today, I want to talk to you about being focused on what really matters. Being focused on what really matters. Because life is full of distractions. Can I get an amen? Especially with cell phones these days, man. Notifications are going off all the time. Uh, A distraction is something that takes our attention away from something that is more important. Let me ask you a question. When is a time during your day that is very important not to be distracted? Did did, did you not catch it? So, sorry. So when is a time during your day that it's very important not to be distracted? Driving, very good. Yes, absolutely. That's where I was looking. That's where I'm going. Okay, so it's very important. I thought some of you were going to say the Alabama football game. That that could be true too. Um, but it's very important not to be distracted while you're driving. So let me ask you the question. You guys can respond. What are some distractions that we have while we drive? Texts. What else? Kids. Yes. Food being thrown at my face from back seat. Yes. What else? Radio, good. What else? Other drivers, yes. Other distracted drivers. Fast food, anybody try to eat and drive with their knees? 
Am I the only one? Sorry. Um, just be careful after I pull out of McDonald's. Okay. Um, distractions are constant while driving. And most of the time, distractions are pretty harmless unless we focus too much on them. I, this week I was pulling, I was driving over Airport Road going down into Jones Valley and someone just, I'm going like 40, I'm going the speed limit I think, okay, and there's a, there's a someone that pulled out in front of me right in the middle of Carl T. Jones and I see this person looking down, okay, so I'm going like 40 and I'm, and of course I honk my horn, but that's, that's the danger of distractions, is when we focus too much on them or we aren't aware of their danger. This illustration pictures the Christian life. We drive through the Christian life with little awareness of the spiritual distractions we face. Let me say that again. We drive through the Christian life with little awareness of the spiritual distractions we face. Just like driving, if we aren't focused, if we aren't aware, if we don't watch out, we could end up spiritually wrecked. The question Paul answers in our passage today is this. What distracts Christians, or particularly the church in Colossae, what distracts us in the church? And Paul today introduces three very common, very pertinent, very relevant distractions that we see in every single church in the world. It is distraction of legalism, mysticism, and asceticism. Now, what in the world do those mean? I'll get into those. So if you have your Bible, turn to Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 through 23. We are in our seventh week of this book, and it's been a few weeks since I have preached. So I'm going to kind of quickly set up the context of our discussion today. And thank you to Dwight, and thank you to Bobby. I thought they did a great job uh, filling in for me. But this book has three main parts. You have chapter 1, 1 and 2 is the introduction. Chapter 1, 3 through 2, 5 is the doctrinal section. And then you have the application section, 2, 6 through the end of chapter 4. So where we pick up today, we're right in the middle of the application section. So if you, if you know anything about Pauline literature, if you ever know anything about his application sections of his books, it's very common, his outline... They're really pretty blunt, okay? They're very relevant to the church he speaks to. And who is the church in Colossae? Who are we talking about? Who are they? In a simplest form, the church in Colossae are a bunch of rock stars. They're great. They, Paul describes them as what? Three main things. That they love in the spirit. That they walk by faith. That they hope in the gospel. But there's a reason why Epaphras went all the way from modern-day Turkey to Rome, that there is a scratch that won't heal. There is an issue in the church that could infect the whole. There is a heresy brewing, threatening to tear the church apart at the seams, and their pastor is terrified and drives all, or drives, walks all the way to Rome to seek Paul's advice. I don't think they had cars back then. But the threat is debated. Amongst modern scholars, there's kind of some discussion on this. But in my opinion, the issue really boils down to Gnosticism. So how does Paul combat this early church heresy that we see? Paul brings them back to the basics of the faith. He reminds them of the gospel hope that they have heard. What is some of the truth he reminds them of? The first, Paul reminds them of the Father's rescue plan. The Father's rescue plan. 
Verse 12 of chapter 1 says this, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us, made us fit to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. For the Father rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He first reminds them of the Father's rescue plan. Second, he reminds them of what? That Jesus Christ is Lord. He is master. He is king. He is ruler over what? That Jesus is Lord over all creation, new creations, and all of reconciliation. And then Paul, at the end of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2, his section, his personal monologue, kind of hinges the two chapters. And Paul reminds the church in Colossae of his own suffering. Why? Because if he can endure, so can they. And then we come to chapter 2, verse 6. This is all the context of what we have already talked about to this point. The, the turning point in the book, the turning point from the doctrine section to the application section is in verse 6 of chapter 2. And there is one key word that marks the shift. If you notice in your text, it is the first word in verse 6. It is the Greek word, un, or therefore. It is showing because of what I have just said, therefore do this. Notice verse 6 of chapter 2. This, this one verse summarizes the whole book. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, that's what he's already talked about. So then walk in him. How do we walk in Christ? We talked about that. We're rooted in truth, edified by one another, mature, bearing fruit, and we overflow with gratitude and joy. But then Paul in verse 8, you know, really for the rest of the book, he talks about all of the things that distract us, all of the things that pull us away from walking in Christ. And he said in chapter 2, verses 8 through 15, what, what, what pulls us Christians away from walking with Christ? We talked about it three weeks ago, but you've eaten since then. It's cool. So what, what, what do you talk about? The, the deception of the world. Have you ever, you don't have to raise your hands this, but have you ever met a Christian that just becomes captivated by some thought in the world that is contrary to the truth of the gospel? Anybody ever relate to that one? We, we are fallen human beings, and from time to time, we get wrapped up in empty deceptions and the philosophies that we see in verse 8. So what Paul then does is he reminds them of the truth. So the things that pull us away from walking in Christ and the deceptions in the world the distortions in ourselves, chapter 3, and then today, the distractions inside the church. So Paul, in my opinion, points out three main distractions, things that cause us to veer off course in the church. Notice verse 16 in your text. Therefore, notice that word again, okay? Therefore, no one is to act as your judge. What's going on here? In regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a noon, new moon or Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Jesus Christ. So wait a second. What is the church in Colossae really struggling with? If you could put an ism on it, a word that is ism, it is the issue of legalism. What are they doing? They're judging people based on the food and drink and respect to festivals or a new moon. Things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance, where substance literally means body, belongs to Christ. Point number one is this, to focus on what really matters. 
We'll talk about what this means here later on. But to focus on what really matters and not on the distraction of standards, i.e. legalism. Now, there's a lot of better words I could have used to describe legalism because this has a positive connotation in our culture, all right? We want standards, but I had to alliterate. I'm a preacher, so that's what I had to do. So standards, what do we mean by standards is rules, additional constraints that we add to the Scripture that allow us to feel right before God and to judge others based on our extra-biblical measures. And if you've ever been in any church, for that matter, then you know legalism is a huge distraction. It's massive. Legalism and hypocrisy is the only thing that Jesus publicly criticized, and every church in the world struggles with a measure of it. Legalism takes on many different forms. Some of it's a performance legalism, moral legalism, intellectual legalism, spiritual or worship legalism. And it is a distraction in every church from true spirituality. But what is legalism? What do we mean by that? Well, the dictionary defines it as this. Excessive adherence to law or to formula. Dependence on moral law rather than on personal faith. What? As I've said, legalism is essentially adding rules to make you feel right before God. What's the problem with that statement? We are right before God. We don't have to feel right before God by adding a bunch of rules to make us feel better than other people and to judge others by that same standard. What does it say in Chapter 2, verse 10, that we are complete in Christ, that we are made alive in Him. If you have ever felt judged by another Christian, um, then you aren't alone. All of us, at times, have felt that way. I remember one time, I didn't walk the aisle, I've shared this story before, one time I didn't walk the aisle to receive the gift of tongues, as if he was handing out like candy, And someone later said, well, God forgives you for that. Ouch. Friendship over. Okay. Baby, notice verse 16. The therefore hinges kind of the new content. If you notice in your text, 2.6, 2.8, 2.16 are all commands. Those three verses contain the first three commands of the book of Colossians. And what are the legalistic people in the church of Colossae, what are they judging them on based on what food, drink, and respect to a festival? So what is Paul saying? Let no one judge you on behalf of what you eat based on what you drink and events. Most scholars believe what's really going on in the church of Colossae is that there are Jewish Christians inside of the church that are judging the Gentile Christians based on their observance of ceremonial and moral law. Now, generally speaking, in the New Testament, the main issue of legalism is centered around what is centered around the issue of circumcision. But here, it's also centered, circumcision is mentioned earlier in chapter 2, but here it's mentioned about food. I guess they're mad that one of the Gentile Christians likes bacon. Amen? I love me some bacon. Over what to drink and over what events to observe. But what's really going on here? Um, 
These Jewish Christians are making mountains out of molehills. They're making big deals of really dumb things that in the grand scheme of things really don't matter. Why should they not judge one another based on these things? Notice verse 17. Things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Because food and drink and festivals are mere shadows, they aren't the real thing, but rather something that appears to be the real thing. One scholar adds this, those who adhere to these shadows act like one who should judge a man's appearance from his shadow, while in the meantime he had himself personally before his eyes, for Christ is now manifested to us, and hence we enjoy him as being present. Notice at the end of verse 17, why shouldn't they then pass legalistic judgment on one another? Because what? Because the body, what? Belongs to Christ. Some scholars believe that that word body is more of a word of substance rather than referring to the body of Christ. It really, really doesn't matter. What's Paul's point? Paul's point in verse 17 is don't judge, don't pass legalistic judgment on people. Why? Because Jesus is the judge, that the body belongs to Christ, that he is the one that has to sit on the throne and judge us for our rights and our wrongs. So don't make up additional rules to make you feel right before God because we are right before God. There's a fine line we, we, we walk as Christians that we, we stand on the scripture. We don't add to it and we don't take away from it, but we stand on it. That we should confess our sins to one another. We should practice church discipline. We should take sin seriously. I'm not saying that in the slightest. But what I'm saying is that legalism is based on preferences. Not based on Scripture. What are some um, things, preferences, that people pass judgment in churches on others for? Yeah. Very good. Music. Yeah. Appearance. Appearance. Good. You like my dome look up here? That's cool. Drums, organ, length of hair, tattoos, piercings, the car I drive, whether I wear a suit or not. Those are all preferences. It doesn't tell me in the Bible that, you know, preachers, you know, whatever. Anyways, moving on from all that. But what really drives legalism it is trying to feel right before god but we are right before god but you know we we tend and let me just say something real quick in my generation the millennial generation the people that remember y2k and thought it was going to be the end of the world okay we we have a source of legalism too it's not just about appearance and music but really it's an issue of tolerance that if you call sin, sin, you aren't loving. And we judge you for that. That's my generation. But that's a form of legalism too. Why do I say that? It's because we're adding rules to make us feel more spiritual. This is, a, this is an issue that's been in church culture for 2,000 years. Clearly, they're having issues over food, drink, and events. What distracts people in the church? Focus on what really matters, not on the distraction of 
standards. But then notice the second issue in verse 18. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize. Notice this phrase right here. If you have your text, I'd encourage you to highlight it. By delighting in self-abasement, what does that mean? And the worship of angels. Taking his stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind. So this is another issue he's experiencing. And not holding fast to the head from whom the entire body, being supplied and held together by joints and ligaments, grows with the growth which is from God. What is he talking about here? Focus on what really matters, not on standards or the issue of sensations. Let no one defraud you by what? By them delighting. You know, that's why I asked you to highlight by them delighting in self-abasement. Self-abasement means belittling oneself. How many of you have ever, you don't have to raise your hand to this. How many of you have ever met somebody that said, um, I, I'm just taking up my cross? You know? I mean, I can't judge that person, okay? But from surface, it seems what? It's self-abasement. They're delighting and they're bringing attention to themselves based on their own suffering. What does Paul say? Look out for anyone who delights in self-suffering and anyone who delights in the worship of angels. But then notice again in verse 18. What does it mean to worship angels? What's the picture of somebody that struggles with this mysticism, experientialism is what I'm calling it for our day and age? Notice the latter half of verse 18. Taking his stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by the fleshly mind. Uh, How many of you have ever seen someone draw attention to themselves because of a vision they had from God? Uh, Sounds like David Koresh in Waco, Texas, okay? How can you tell if someone is legitimate? You know if someone comes to you in a sign or a dream, how can you tell just from the get-go if just that sign or dream is from the Lord? Well, first thing, are they delighting? Are they bringing attention to themselves? Or are they reflecting it to God? We, we love those that appear spiritual. We love those that appear to be the Lord's anointed who talk spiritually all the time, who talk about how they are suffering, how the Lord has given them a vision. If anybody ever comes up to you and says, God gave me a vision for your life, um, I'm not saying that can never happen, but please be skeptical, okay? Can the Lord speak to you in visions? We'll talk about that. Well, off the record, okay, this is a big time rabbit trail on that one. But just be skeptical. Anybody that brings attention to themselves based on a vision they have and not to the head, doesn't submit themselves to Jesus Christ, seen in verse 18, verse 19, that can be an issue. Allow me to transport verse 18 and 19 to today. Many of us don't think, many churches worship angels, but I think there is a similar struggle in many churches today. These verses make me think of the modern church and our desire for an experience, visions, not giving glory to God. Um, I'm not trying to be a Scrooge or be mean, but I'm just pointing out an observation in life. 
My generation in particular is tempted by the appearance of spirituality, the appearance of suffering, the appearance of the Spirit. Can the Spirit's presence lead to emotions? Yeah, absolutely. But we must be careful in churches today not to confuse emotions with the Spirit, sensations with the Spirit. The modern church struggles with legalism, experientialism. I'm going to say another phrase, and if I make you mad, forgive me for it. Uh, You can send me an email afterwards and just tell me how mad you are. It's fine. Um, But if we have to have our senses heightened to feel the Spirit, then the Spirit is probably not there. Your emotions may be heightened, but let's not substitute spirituality for the desire to feel and experience something. Let us not be careful to appear, to feel right before God, to appear, to appear right before God because we are right before God. Notice verse 20 of chapter 2. If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why? I feel like Paul would take his pen and put that in all caps. Why, as if you were living in the world, do you then submit yourself to the decrees, such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch? What is he saying here? Why are you submitting yourself to the standards of the world and the religious of the world? which all refer to things destined to perish with use in accordance with the commands and teachings of men. These are matters which have to be sure the appearance of wisdom and self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of which have to be sure the no value against fleshly indulgence. Let me just, so why are the church in Colossae, why are they tempted to do not taste, do not touch? Is they're trying to control, in a sense, their fleshly desires, their fleshly indulgences. And how do we help control our fleshly desires and indulgences? Chapter 3. We'll see that in chapter 3 next week. Do not handle, do not taste, and do not touch. In other words, what? If we have died with Christ, the old self, why then do we want to live like the religious of the world? The religious of the world are what? Obsessed with do and do not. But we... But we are set free from that. All the legalistic standards and rules that we have... All the times that we try to appear spiritual and act spiritual, we don't have to feel. Let me just say something, and I hope you receive this. We don't have to feel right before God. But if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you are right before God. You are redeemed. You're his child. You are a son of God. You're part of the body of Christ. You're part of the family of God. But I think a lot of people, can I just speak plainly for just a moment? I think a lot of people feel like they're right before God, but really have never really been born again and changed. I think, I say this all the time, I think our churches are full in America of people that think they are saved, and they are so far from it. We should not worry about the external acts of religiosity but we should worry about a genuine relationship with the Lord. We should not be pious to act right before God. We are right before God. 
We should be pious. We should pray. We should read our Bible. We should listen to the Spirit. We should talk to God when we lay down and rise up because we are right before God, not because we want to feel right before God. Because of what Christ has done, believers in Jesus Christ are rescued, transferred, and qualified together that we are new creations, children of God, part of the family of God. We have the Spirit of God living inside us, guiding us, and we should pray. We should read the Bible. We should be cognizant of every area of our life being subjected in obedience to Him, not to make us feel right before God, but because of what He has done for us already on the cross. What does He say in chapter 1, verses 22? You are formerly alien and hostile mind, engaged in evil deeds, but because of what Christ has done... In order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach, the religious of the world, verse 20 through 23, the religious of the world are obsessed with do and do not. The appearance, the act of being religious and spiritual, but we are. That's our status. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, that never changes. So instead of being motivated to seek God based on some external appearance, we should be motivated to seek the Lord because of what he's already accomplished. Verse 22, which all refer to things predestined to perish with use in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men. These are matters which have to be sure the appearance of wisdom. How many of you, especially if you were new in your faith, saw somebody that was so obsessed with all of the rituals, all the appearance, all, do not taste, do not touch, and you automatically kind of put them on a pedestal because it appears to be of wisdom. The appearance of wisdom in self-made religion, self-abasement, and severe treatment of the body, but are no value against fleshly indulgences. It is inspiring to see others suffer for the sake of religion, but if the motivation is for how you look or how you feel or justifying yourself before other people, then it's not of Christ. It's not of God. There was a monk in the 1500s that reminds, when I read verse 23, in severe treatment of the body, but are of which to be sure the no value against fleshly indulgence. What does that make you think of? There's a monk in the 1500s that used to whip himself. You know, in the track when he used to walk around the monastery whipping himself for all of the mistakes and sins that he made. And then one day he opened up the Bible. <laughs> okay. And he read Romans chapter 1 verse 17. And it says, the righteous shall live by faith. And that moment changed his life. And he became the father of the Reformation, a man named Martin Luther. What's the point? What's Paul's point today is this. Focus on what really matters, not on standard sensations or the act of sanctimony. Sanctimony mean the act of appearing religious. But what's the question? You know, what's the question that we have to still answer in the point? What, is, what, what, what should we really focus on? These are all things that we can control. We can appear, we can act, and we can feel Religious. These are all things that we can control as human beings. But what should we rather focus on instead of all of these external rules? 2.6. It says this in 2.6. I'll get there. 
Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so then walk in him. Instead of worrying about all of the rules that we, all of our failings, all the ways that we do not measure up, what should we focus on instead? Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus, so then walk in him. In the Christian life, we can veer off course with the distractions we face, but we should instead walk in Christ. What does that mean? To live for him by living like him. How do we live like him, rooted in truth, edified by one another, mature and bearing fruit, and joyfully overflowing with gratitude? Walking in Christ, living for him by living like him. Focus on walking in Christ, not distracted by standards and sensations or the act of sanctimony or the act of appearance of being religious. So i got seven minutes left. So... The last question I have is, so what? You know, how do we take this passage that seems on the surface totally irrelevant to the 21st century, and how do we kind of transport it to the modern-day culture? So the question number one is quite simple, and I don't ask this for shaming or any... I don't, I don't want to do that. That's not my intention in the slice any time I ever preach. It's just honest questions, okay? And these are the same questions that I ask myself. Question number one is what distraction distracts you? Is it standard sensations or sanctimony? The act of appearing spiritual. Okay. How do you tell if you struggle with legalism? Can we answer that question? How do you struggle? How do you, can you tell if you struggle with legalism? Those who struggle with legalism focus on all of the mistakes of other people. You walk into church and you start looking for those that are out of line. You look for people in the church and you say, well, they didn't do this and they didn't do that and they didn't do this and they didn't do that. And can I just speak a little bit personally speaking? Um, we can take those legalistic mindset into our families, into our homes, and cause our children and our spouse to measure up to a standard that they cannot achieve. And we do the same thing here. How can you tell if you struggle with legalism? Do you look at all of the mistakes of other people? How do you tell if you struggle with the issue of sensations or experientialism, which is a big thing in my generation? This is, this is your life. That your walk with God, your encouragement, your passion for the Lord is based on what? It's based on your latest thing. How church went, or how enthusiastic I was, okay, or how enthusiastic the music was. That your, your spiritual walk with the Lord is a based on circumstances of feeling. How do you feel? If you're in an argument with your spouse, or you have conflict, you probably want to quit and run away. Hey man, I've been there, done that. If you're distracted with sensations, experientialism, you mood swing. You're up one moment and down the next. And if you don't struggle with legalism and the issue of experientialism, then you struggle with this one. you got to have one of these three, if not all three. <laughs> okay, we'll have a, a, a time after the service where we can talk about which one we struggle with. We won't, but moving on, um, don't panic, okay? But the, the third one, if you don't struggle with legalism or experientialism, the up and down nature of the Christian life, then you struggle with this one, sanctimony, appearing or acting spiritual concentrating on the outer shell of being religious when inside you're dead and you're far from the Lord. 
Um, and if you maintain these distractions, what is the outcome? If you're legalistic, you'll, it will lead to spiritual exhaustion because you're trying to spin the plates of the rules and standards that you've implemented on yourself. If you maintain the distraction of experientialism, then you'll be spiritually starved. And if you struggle with asceticism, the last one, then you will feel like a spiritual fraud. But how do you replace? Question number two is this. So which of these distractions do you struggle with? And question number two is how do you replace the distraction with truth? Let me just ask you the question. Let's go with the driving scenario, okay? How do you not be distracted when you're driving? You put down your phone, okay? You, you, you don't do the things that distract you. You concentrate on what is most important. Friends, listen to me. It is so easy to get pigeonholed in all these legalistic standards. Do not taste, do not touch. It's so easy to get pigeonholed in in the moment of how you feel. It's so easy to concentrate on what people think of you and the outer appearance of spirituality when you're dead on the inside. But what's really important as I look at the scripture is walking in Christ, is replacing the lies and the distractions you have in your life with the truth. Walking in Christ, living for Him by living like Him. What is the truth of who we are in Christ Jesus? Man, we did a gear up class on the foundations of missional living, and this was a big piece of the class. It's who we really are. What should we focus on as we drive through life? Just from the book of Colossians, let me share some with you. What is the truth? That you are qualified You are rescued. You are transferred. You are a saint. You're part of the family of God. You have hope in the gospel. You're under Christ's leadership. You have peace with God through the blood of his cross. You went from alienated from God to holy, blameless, and beyond reproach. You have a certificate of debt taken away and nailed to the cross. And you were made alive together with him. Can all people say amen? So you are made complete. You are a new creation. As you walk in Christ Jesus, do not be distracted by the shiny object, by the appeal of legalism, experientialism, and asceticism. Rather, stay focused on what really matters. What really matters is walking in Christ. Because of what he has done for you, verse 6, therefore, walk in him. Live for him by living like him. But all of this is totally irrelevant. Um, totally not doable unless you have been born again. Unless you have the Spirit of God living inside of you. Unless you believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Uh, very quickly, um, I'm going to pray in just a moment. And I'm going to give us like 20 seconds just to kind of pray silent to the Lord. And this is really what I want to ask you I want you to ask the Lord, am I, do I have a relationship with you? Am I truly saved? Am I truly born again? I think a lot of us are deceived in churches today. Um, and it is impossible to be part of the family of God. It is impossible to have eternal life in any other. If you have never received Christ Jesus, believed in him as Lord and Savior of your life, then he offers you the gift of salvation free of charge. For by grace you are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is a gift of God, not 
as a result of works so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he has prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. If you have never believed in Christ Jesus, believe and be saved. I'm going to give us about 20 seconds and just bow your heads, and then I'll close this in a word of prayer. Father, the main thing is keeping the main thing the main thing. Lord, I just I pray uh, that we would have a genuine relationship with you. A relationship not built upon guilt or shame or the standards that we place upon ourselves to make us feel a certain way, but that it would be genuine, that we would truly love you because of what you have done for us on the cross. Because that before you, because of the blood of Christ, we are wholly blameless and beyond reproach that we are made alive, that we are complete in you, that we would walk in you, that we would seek after you, that we would want to walk in the path that you have provided for us in your word. Lord, I pray that we would not be careful, that we would be careful not to add to the scripture or to take away from it, but to stand on it and how you have given us this word as a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Lord, truly only you can convict our hearts um, to be, to believe in you and to see you as our Lord and Savior. I pray for those that do not have a personal relationship with you, for those that aren't born again, that don't have rivers of living water flowing through them. I pray that you would convict their heart to believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior of their life, that they would believe that you died on the cross for their sin, that you rose again, and that they would confess with their mouth and believe in their heart. And uh, be with the rest of today. Thank you for this church and the generosity and the love that they have for you. May we be lights to the world. May we be different. And may we not be obsessed with the standards of the religions of the world, how they place upon us, but we would be obsessed in our growing in our walk with you. In Jesus' name, amen.